Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, We are looking at Philippians chapter 4 today. We've been working our way through the book of Philippians uh, over the last several weeks. This is our last week uh, in Philippians. Uh, This is a book written by the Apostle Paul while he was in a Roman uh, jail cell. And he's writing to this church in Philippi. And just want to remind you a little bit about the context of that church and that city, uh, Philippi. Philippi is a coastal town. Um, It's a city on the north Aegean Sea. And it was famous in the first century for uh, really a horrific battle that had taken place. Um, There was a battle there at Philippi that was so devastating that the city essentially ceased to exist. That's how many people were slaughtered in the battle. And eventually, um, what they decided to do to to actually have a city was to resettle it. They needed new people to live in this city so that it would exist. And they looked around and they said, hey, all these soldiers from Rome... Um, who took place in this victorious battle. Um, We don't have food for them. We don't really have work for them. Let's let them stay here and we'll just give them the land and they can live in Philippi. And that's what they did. It was a town comprised primarily at this time of Roman military veterans uh, who had actually been victorious in battle uh, there in Philippi. And I mention that because it's interesting. Um, a key concept of the Roman Empire was the idea of peace. Um, Usually when we're reading the scriptures and we hear the word peace, we might think of the Hebrew word shalom, Um, wholeness, goodness, flourishing, these kinds of concepts related to the word shalom. Uh, But here they're talking about a different kind of peace. Uh, They call this the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And the peace of Rome is not the peace of a health spa. The peace of Rome is the silence once you have vanquished your opponent utterly, decimated them totally. Peace achieved after expansion and military victory. And many of the folks receiving this letter had taken part in bringing that kind of peace to Philippi. And now they're enjoying the good life with these lands they've been given and the beauty of this countryside, this coastal town. And so it's in the midst of that specific cultural situation that St. Paul is writing this letter. And his his focus here in chapter 4 is peace. Not the kind of peace brought about through force of arms, of military arms, but the kind of peace brought about when the Son of God stretched out his arms on the hardwood of the cross. He's talking about a different counterintuitive victory that came about through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's calling them into uh, following their true Savior and true Lord who brings about true peace. He wants them to know a different peace. He wants us to know a different peace, the peace of the gospel. Um, And that's a peace that's available right now for you and me. It should be the defining mark of uh, mature Christians filled by the Holy Spirit. 
And so in this teaching in chapter 4, we're going to focus on the middle section, verses 4 through 13. Uh, Paul focuses on rejoicing in God's peace and on resting in God's peace. That's what we'll look at today, rejoicing in God's peace, resting in God's peace. Um, So first, rejoicing. Verse 4, it's pretty straightforward. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say uh, rejoice. Um, Paul likes repetition to make his point. If you're trying to figure out what to pay attention to when you're studying the scripture, see what's repeated. Uh, Because that's their way of underlining things. So he says rejoice twice. And he says rejoice always. And right now a lot of you have already tuned him out. Because you've heard an exhortation to rejoice, to worship, to be happy when you didn't want to. And it probably wasn't even that appropriate, given the circumstances and situations uh, you were going through. Uh, Some have used this verse as an invitation to a happy, clappy, chin up, cheer up, pretend nothing is ever wrong kind of Christianity. Um, It's amazing. This this chapter, chapter 4 of Philippians, is this dense, mature reflection that we have pulled out into like little cross-stitching on pillows and bumper stickers. We've just taken, isolate these verses and not even think about what is Paul going through himself and what is he calling them to. So folks will take this and go, oh, this is great. This is just a pretend nothing is ever wrong. Worship at all times. This is the REM version of Christianity. Shiny, happy people. <laughs> That's what some people see here in this verse. Um, And I actually think that that is the opposite of what Paul is saying here. Um, I think he's actually encouraging this congregation, um, not when things are going well, um, but when things are really hard, when you're not happy, when you're downcast, when things are wrong and confusing and hard, like when you're an apostle and you've been thrown in jail and you might die, because that's what he's going through right here. Even then, rejoice. Even then, take joy. Even then, root yourself in the good news of the gospel. Uh, One scholar from Cambridge, his name is Marcus Bachmule, he said that this here from the Apostle Paul is not cloying advice to cheer up or have a nice day. Biblical joy is the fruit not of circumstances, but of the Lord's Spirit. It derives from what he has done for them in the past, from his presence with them now, and from the hope and the promise of his coming again. So in the midst of hardship, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, he's saying, remember what God has done for you. Remember his presence with you now that can't be taken away, even if you're thrown in jail. And remember the great hope that is to come, not as a way of pretending that this pain isn't real, but of putting it in context and then rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. He wants to see this come, this joy, this worship as a fruit, as a product of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It's a posture of trust and contentment in the face of all circumstances, probably especially in the, in the tough circumstances like he's experiencing here. He wants them to focus not on their hardship, but on God's work in us, for us, and through us. 
Verse 5 is intriguing. He says, let your reasonableness, reasonableness, I couldn't say this the last service either. <laughs> let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I think that's interesting because he tells them to worship, to rejoice, but for it to be reasonable. In other words, <laughs> don't be weird. <laughs> don't let it be odd. Um, and you know that. The person who's just forcing some kind of weird, quirky, joyful, shiny, happy thing, and you're like, dude, are your eyes open? Like, are you here with me right now in what you're going through? Um, your circumstances and your joy need to be reasonable and to match um, a deep trust in the Lord, not a grit your teeth, pretend nothing is wrong kind of outlook. And he says that that will actually be a witness that it'll be perceived, it'll be known, and people will go, man, how do you have that kind of joy and peace and contentment in light of what's happening? He goes on in verses 6 through 7. They're very interesting. He deals with anxiety and worry and prayer, and he deals with those before he gets to peace. I think he sequences that pretty intentionally. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. And by the way, I've heard that used as a club as well. Do not be anxious about anything. Uh, but Paul says, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, what's happening here? Is it unchristian to ever worry? Or to be anxious? Or sad? Or depressed? Because if so, like every prophet in the Old Testament is disqualified. <laughs> um, now, what's happening here? Um, the way I take this, and I hope this isn't trying to just blunt the, the force of this command, um, but the way I think about this is um, that Paul is trying to talk about dealing with these of things and emotions with our own limited resources and strength. Like when I hear, do not be anxious, but in everything pray, I hear, don't just sit and stew. Don't just sit and stew, but reach out to the Lord in prayer. He already knows what's going on. And if you reach out to him, you will be surprised, uh, not that the circumstances might be changed, but how you might be changed uh, in the midst of those circumstances. Paul wants these folks to pray when they are anxious, when they worry, when they are sad. I don't think he's saying pretend these emotions don't exist or that you won't encounter them. Because when you encounter these things, that's when you pray and you find joy and you find peace and you find a contentment that is contrary to what you would expect given your circumstances. Um, the peace then that comes, verse 7, is the fruit of this prayer. The peace of God, which surpasses understanding it doesn't make sense. We'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, one scholar reflecting on this says that biblical faith uh, sees prayer as a counsel not of despair but of confidence. Not as a last resort, but as the open-handed integration of our hopes and fears into the redemptive purposes of God in Christ. That's what I take from this verse. Is prayer a last resort for us? 
Or do we go to that first, immediately, automatically, knowing that our Father knows what we need and will give us what we need, even if it isn't what we want or the answer that we hope for at all times? No, in the New Testament, there's a peace that comes from the gospel, an overarching peace for those reconciled to the Lord. Um, There is a, a peace that will come a peace that comes after and sometimes mysteriously as a response to prayer that the Holy Spirit brings. And again, it may not even make sense, the kind of peace that can come. Bishop N.T. Wright says that prayer like that will mean God's peace. And that's not a, a stoic lack of concern, pretending things aren't wrong, but a deep peace in the middle of life's problems and storms. And he takes this idea that the peace will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He says that word guard is very similar to if you had a treasure chest full of jewels and coins and money and you station guards around it to protect it. He said the Lord can come and guard your hearts and your minds in that same way and keep you safe and root you in him. And again, that's not the tranquility of a health spa. Um, That's an awareness, first and foremost, that we don't have to handle the problems of this world by ourselves. And we can't, by the way. I think most of you are old enough to know that, right? If you try to do it on your own, it won't work. Uh, But no, we actually can reach out in prayer to God. We can trust that he has done this work for us and for our salvation. He's at work in our lives now, and he will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. That's the teaching across uh, the book of Philippians. And that should give us a joy that is deeper than happiness and a peace that is more mature than just tranquility or stillness or ease. To see assurance and reminder that God, God the creator is with us and for us. Uh, Psalm 46 verse one says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Or actually learn, I like this version better. Uh, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of need. When we have those times of need, what do you do? What's next? Do you turn to the Lord in prayer? Do you turn to the community of the church? Or do we sit and stew and let that fester? That's what Paul's getting at here in this passage. Um, This kind of peace that he hopes for operates out of an awareness of God's love for us, his delight in us, the assurance that he is bringing things to completion in ways that we can't even hope or imagine. And again, sometimes in ways that we would never ask for on our own. Um, I served under Bishop Todd Hunter when I lived in Texas for several years. And Bishop Todd um, is these masters of one-liners, And it's not the one-liners that are cliche, that are on a pillow or a a bumper sticker. It's the kind of one-liners that root you in the truth of God. And so what he would say, I think every time I heard him preach, Chris was in this diocese, Chris knows, um, every time he would gather clergy or anyone, he would say, you are always safe in the kingdom of God. Um, And for many of our churches, then a lot of folks were taking huge risk and starting new works and seeing pain and suffering. You were always safe in the kingdom of God. 
And that didn't mean that you'll be kept from trouble and hardship and all the things that make us um, anxious and worried and sad. He goes, even in the midst of those, you are safe in the kingdom of God. Even if you're an apostle and you're thrown in jail and you're waiting to see if they're going to execute you or not, that's Paul in this passage. If you're reduced, if your ministry is reduced to writing letters to your beloved churches, you are always safe in the kingdom of God. Um, And when Bishop Todd would teach us that, he would say that that's rooted not in our circumstances, but in the resurrection of Jesus. And in the great hope we have of the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. He's like, Jesus was always safe in the kingdom of God. And you go, wait a minute. He was arrested and flogged and spitten upon, and crucified, and died. And Todd would say, Bishop Todd, yes. And he was safe in the kingdom of God. And then he was raised from the dead. And you will be too. And I will be too. Um, That's the kind of anchor that can produce this kind of letter from jail as you're awaiting execution. It's a, a, a joy and a peace and a safety that we experience now that's sturdy enough to guide us when things are hard, and to guide us even beyond death into the life of the world to come. I think Paul would say, if you don't have that kind of anchor, you're just going to be tossed around. I mean, later he's going to talk about how he has maturely um, learned to have joy and peace and contentment when things are at their best and when things are at their worst, because he's rooted in the hope of the gospel. And in the peace of God, he goes, if your anchor is not there, you're just going to be tossed. And so when things are good, you're going to feel good. When things are bad, you're going to feel bad. Or even more confusingly, when things are good, you're still going to feel like, well, I guess that's okay. But that doesn't fully satisfy. (laughs) He goes, no, you need to root yourself in the goodness and joy and peace of God. You need to rejoice And again, he says, rejoice. So secondly, he says, this comes from resting in and abiding in God's peace and a deep sense of gospel joy and contentment. And so he goes on in verses eight and nine uh, to talk about Christian living. He says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, uh, do those things, and the God of peace will be with you. Um, It's interesting that he connects this sense of joy and peace in the midst of hardship um, to Christian living and virtue. And it's, it's worth realizing that when he makes this list, um, that this is not a random list that Paul puts together. Um, this list is, corresponds almost exactly to the classical virtues that would have been taught as a known good in the Greco-Roman world. Truth and honor, goodness, beauty, justice. In some way, what Paul is doing is saying all those things that you were taught that were good, they find their fullest expression in the gospel, their fullest expression in the Lord Jesus. And I find that really helpful 
Because at other times, Paul reminds them that there are ways of living that will be confusing to those around you. It will be contrary and countercultural. But he says, there are these higher things that even those who aren't believers recognize as good and true and beautiful. Focus on those things. Focus on, one scholar says that if you read the early church fathers, they pull out this verse whenever they're talking to Greek and Roman philosophers. And what they do is they argue for the moral sanity of Christianity based on the classic virtues that were pursued. It's very interesting. Um, It's the kind of thing where we would look at those we might know who aren't yet following Jesus and go, hey, where's their common ground in terms of goodness and joy and beauty and delight? Um, Let's focus there. Let's connect there and see what the Lord might do. It's pursuing uh, goodness and flourishing. Um, And that means this isn't simply a handy list of do's and don'ts. I mean, I will say, like, when I was first taught these verses, verses 8 and 9, it was essentially as like a filter for how to think about media and entertainment. (laughs) So if if there's a PG-13 movie, (laughs) filter it through this. Is it good? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Um, If there's a song, filter it through that. Is it good? Is it lovely? Is it commendable? Um, Before you say that cuss word, And Paul's already cussed in this book, for goodness sake. (laughs) Um, And and again, there's there's a rightness and a first step to that, of thinking through what you dwell on and fill your mind with and what you focus on. But I think Paul is not just trying to keep us from things that are bad. He's trying to help us pursue the things that are good, the things that make for wholeness and for flourishing and for goodness. He's not saying fill your life with Thomas Kincaid paintings. By the way, hopefully if you're younger, you don't even know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Thomas Kincaid is the painter of light, and he is to the world of art what elevator music is to (laughs) great music. Um, It's just flat and uninteresting and not what we should focus on because it doesn't make for goodness and joy and beauty and flourishing at all. And again, don't don't miss what I'm saying. I'm not saying, great, let's go and consume all the bad things of this world, right? That's not what I'm saying at all. Of course, um, our time, our attention, our affections, our media, entertainment, consumption should be governed by godly wisdom in pursuit of human flourishing. I think as you're thinking about the things you fill your mind and your focus on, Um, You want to have appropriate transparency and accountability with people in your life. Here's what I'm thinking about. Here's why I'm thinking about it. You want to think through your own temperament. Um, Like I know some folks, they're really given to melancholy. And so if they just like immerse themselves in like dark comedy or whatever, like it's going to spiral into a bad place. Um, Other folks, they might have a different temperament. You want to know yourself. You want to be honest with those around you. Here's what I'm watching. Here's what I'm listening to. Here's why. Here's why we should think about it in this way. Um, And I actually think that that's maybe a better takeaway than using this as a filter. Are you transparent? Do you have accountability? Uh, Because when things in our lives are secret and they're shameful, they can govern us. And they don't bring peace. They bring turmoil. 
to our souls and our lives and the people around us rather than God's peace. And those things that are the opposite of good and beautiful, man, they do their worst work when they're hidden and in the dark. And they become these secret factories of shame. And so Paul would say, no, transparency, accountability, community is vital for holy living. But don't stop at ignoring things that are bad for you. Go on to pursue the things that are good. Practice those things. Do uh, those things and rely on the Lord to be at work in your life. And then seemingly out of nowhere, Paul just completely switches gears when we get to verse 10. Um, <laughs> and it, it's almost, I mean, uh, we had a great reading of Philippians 4 and I was waiting to see if folks just got whiplash. Because he goes from this, you know, he's extolling the virtues of the Christian faith and of the classical world. Then all of a sudden he switches to a donor thank you letter. (laughs) Some of you know donor thank you letters. You've written them. uh, You've received them. I know people here, they fundraise for the work that they do uh, in campus ministries. Um, We've got a missionary family here with us who's preparing to go on the mission field. And what you're doing is, hey, you're raising support. You're raising resources. And you want to say, hey, thank you for the way that you have partnered with me. And so that's what Paul shifts to. And I mean, did you catch that? He's like, hey, no other church gave me anything except y'all. Thank you, Philippians. When I was in jail and I was in need, everybody ignored me. But Philippians, y'all were there for me. Um, And it's not... It's not trite, it's not cliche, it's not manipulative. He is generously and genuinely thankful for how they have served him. But the other interesting thing is he doesn't necessarily focus on, here's how it made my life easy or better, or here's how I use that money. He goes, no, when you partnered with me, I gave you the opportunity to worship the Lord. And so he talks about that. He kind of says, hey, I'm fine. If things are top of the mountain or bottom, I'm good. I've learned the secret of contentment. But when you partner with me, you worship the Lord. And so I'm grateful that you had that opportunity to grow in maturity and faith um, and in generosity. And then in verse 13, he's landing the plane and the apostle Paul quotes Tim Tebow. Sorry, no, he doesn't. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, by, okay, so Tim Tebow, um, he, was a, he was a quarterback for Florida when they used to be good. Um, and he would frustrate, uh, especially Georgia football fans, uh, by his play. Um, and I don't mean to poke fun at Tim Tebow. I like Tim Tebow. I like his foundation. I went to seminary with his sister, and we used to watch the Georgia-Florida games uh, with, with Christy. Um, But Tim Tebow was well known uh, for this verse, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because Tim Tebow on the football field um, would, in his eye black, he would put P-H-I-L 4.13 when he wasn't putting John 3.16. It was always one of the two. And it was, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Um, and I, I think he was very well-intentioned when he did this. He was trying to give honor to the Lord. I'm not trying to bash Tim Tebow. But what it did is it helped people even more so read this verse as all about touchdowns and gold medals. And, and like, we can do anything. Ab, like, God will fulfill all of our dreams because he strengthens us. I told the story before. I remember in high school, we were playing a soccer team, and we were down 3 nothing at halftime. And one of the players goes, it's all right, guys. We can come back. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And I was like, you know what? We're not going to stop that kid. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's just better. It's okay. Um, and I just want to say, like, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. What he's talking about is something better. Um, what he's saying is not that you can do anything in this kind of optimistic, open-ended way. He's saying you can endure anything. Like whether things are really good or whether things are terrible, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Um, the word do here means to have special personal ability to do or experience something. It says God-given uh, endurance. Um, to go through the hard times and the good times of life. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our midst that helps us stand up and stand firm, like Paul says here, uh, when life is really hard, um, when sadness comes, when disappointment comes, when sickness or illness or death or loss comes, when we disappoint ourselves with the choices we've made, the things done and left undone, the Holy Spirit comes into our midst and says, hey, here's how you do all things through Christ who gives you strength, who encourages you, who holds you upright in the gospel. That is having gospel joy and peace and contentment that will endure. Uh, some people know that Paul loves trios. He's a good preacher. Did anyone else here grow up on like three-point sermons? I don't know. Paul likes trios. He likes to talk about faith, hope, and love a lot. Here, I think he's given us another trio in the gospel. He's talking about joy, peace, and contentment. What's it look like to have joy, peace, and contentment because of what God has done for you and for me, even when circumstances call for something different? And so I want to close with this illustration. I think some of our kids are in the back, but we'll go fast. I see Father Bill standing back there. Um, heard the story from a professor who was uh, doing a short-term mission trip and he was over in South Africa in this uh, rather poor town. And he was getting ready to go up and deliver uh, the sermon. So guest preachers, it's, it's this thing. And uh, the pastor pulled him aside before he went up. He said, hey, let me tell you what's been going on in the village. Because you're going to preach. And you need to know what's been happening here um, in our village. And what's going on is that, hey, right before the service, um, that house over there got burned down. Um, some people came, and they thought there was a thief living in that house, so they burned the house to the ground. So folks are going to walk through the smoke and see the fire as they come into uh, church today. And last week, you weren't here, but we were here. And last week, a tornado came through the town, and it destroyed about 50 homes. Um, since then, about five people, uh, they died as a result of the tornado coming through. And uh, just last night, um, a 14-year-old young man in our church, part of our Sunday school program, um, actually got stabbed by some guys, um, and he's died. 
And so now go bring a word of joy and comfort. The pastor actually opened the service instead of the guest preacher. And he began his opening prayer. Lord, you are the creator and the sovereign. But why did the wind come like a snake and tear our roofs off? Why did a mob cut short the life of one of our own children? We had everything to live for over and over again. Lord, we are in the midst of death. He was honest with the circumstances. He was taking it to the Lord in worship and prayer. And said, as the pastor spoke, the congregation started sighing and groaning. They're audibly grieving and lamenting what has been going on. They didn't internalize it like good Anglicans. (laughs) They're groaning and they're sighing and they're lamenting. And they said, finally, slowly, the congregation began to sing. And it was slow, and it was quiet, and then it built with confidence and joy and peace and strength. And they sang song after song after song after song of praise to God. Praise to the one who in Jesus had been plunged into the very worst things of this world to give us a promise and an ending beyond all imagining. And the professor talked about what's amazing is not just shiny, happy people when things are good, but the kind of joy that grows out of lament and grief and sorrow and honesty. That's the fruit of those things. That singing of that congregation gave them a foretaste of the end. The feast we heard about in Isaiah 25. And the professor said, Christian hope then isn't about looking around at the things of our world and trying to imagine where it's all going. And it's not even about trying to calculate the future uh, from the present. You don't just look out and go, all right, we're waiting on the resurrection of the dead, the life of the world to come. How do we reverse engineer that? Um, I don't know about you. If you've been watching the news and following things, um, it's scary. Like you've seen sin and evil on display. Um, You don't pretend that hasn't happened. You bring that to the Lord in prayer. You bring that with tears first, but then with joy and with peace. Here's uh, the professor's name is Jeremy Begbie. He said that true Christian hope is about breathing now the fresh air of the ending, tasting the spices, sipping the wine of the feast to come, getting a foretaste of what God will do when he floods all of his good creation with his presence and goodness and truth and honor and justice and beauty. And part of worship is we get to share in that foretaste here this morning. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let me pray for us. Oh God, the author of peace and lover of concord, to know you is eternal life. To serve you is perfect freedom. Defend us, your servants, from all assaults of our enemies, that we may trust in your defense and not fear the power of any adversaries. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.